ladies and gentlemen, with me on the other end, Joel Salton, third generation farmer, runs the Polyface Farms, the farm services over 5,000 families, 50 restaurants, and five retail outlets. You've seen him with the giant hat on Food Inc., the documentary in 2009. He's an author and speaker whose books include You Can Farm, Salad Bar Beef, and Folks. This ain't normal. Joel, my man, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. Listen, before we get going, I am a huge fan of your work. I've been following it for years, and uh, it's really an honor to talk with you today. I've listened to pretty much everything you've done, so a huge fan over here. Thank you very much. So, uh, based on my very limited experience speaking with uh, farmers, I don't know too many, but I'm I get the impression that farming is kind of something it's a lifestyle. It's it's something you are born into. Um was that the case for you? How how did you get involved in farming? <laughs> yeah, well, I was certainly born into it. Uh my dad uh always aspired to be a full-time farmer. Never uh, didn't really uh make that happen in his lifetime, but he he set up a stage to where Teresa and I could launch and uh so we've certainly enjoyed it. But uh, I started with my first batch of chickens when I was 10. Mom and Dad uh, bought this farm in 1961. I was just four years old. And uh, so I grew up here and started a flock of chickens when I was 10, kind of my own business, and always gave me my spending money through high school and teenage years and stuff, and then was direct marketing and selling to neighbors, a couple restaurants, a couple schools at a at a local curb market, which kind of was a, was a, pre- a depression-area precursor to today's uh, farmers markets and uh and just just really you know looking back uh sometimes you don't realize what you you're thinking when you're a kid but i think subconsciously i just really enjoyed um kind of being in the center of abundance yeah and uh and and the idea of being able to walk out of your back soup and and just know that you're you're kind of in this womb or this nest of abundance just really resonated with me and, and still does. Hmm. Absolutely. And so you run Polyface Farms now in, in Virginia, correct? Yes. Is that the is that the farm you grew up working on? Yeah, yeah. Well we you know, we didn't name it Polyface until until uh Teresa and I, you know, launched kinda we we came back uh, full time. I mean I I uh I was gone from the farm for a couple of years. Um you know, went to college and then you know did the the typical, you know, you go to college and then you yeah. Um, I, 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 you know, initially didn't see a way to make a living here. Um, initially I thought, well, yeah, this, this was the late seventies. It was the Nixon era Watergate. And I figured, you know, I, I had a flair for writing. I knew that, you know, that I, I was, uh, I had some, some talent there. And so, you know, I thought, well, I'll go be another Woodward and Bernstein, you know, find my deep throat and make my mint, you know, and then I can retire to the farm as a, you know, <laughs> and that was kind of my, my game plan. And as it turned out, uh, I got on at the local newspaper and uh, as a reporter, and um, that allowed me to live here at home. So I did the, you know, the, the farm commute thing for about two years, yeah. and um, and then and then we, you know, by 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 being here and living very frugally, driving a fifty dollar car, uh, you know, growing all of our own food, growing all of our own fuel, uh, not. You know, going to movies, not going out to eat. You know, uh, wearing thrift store clothes. The point was, we were able to live so cheaply that even on you know pretty nominal salaries, we were able to save a substantial amount 
so that um, so that we could make that jump and uh, and and you know take essentially take a year. And I fully expected to go back you know to outside employment, but as it, as it turns out, we never did because our expenses our expenses dropped so much when we came home full time. Yeah. And and not only did our expenses drop because we weren't you know driving to town. But but secondly, we were here for everything, and and you know in farming, well a lot of things in life, but in farming for sure, a lot of things depend on strategic timing. You know if you wait for the weeds to get so big that they're hard to pull, it's twice as hard to weed something than if you if you get them when they just germinated and you can just knock them with a stirrup hole, for example. Uh, we were here for every calf that was born, so if there was a problem delivery, you know we could help help the cow and not lose the calf. Uh, so the, the the thing that that really um, uh, changed things that, that made us go, could I say, um, you know, over budget, and I mean over budget in a good way. In other words, we were planning for this much, and then we ended up, you know, being twice as good. Was just that we did not we did not realize how much our presence here would eliminate slippage and let us be more strategic and efficient with our time. So what I'm hearing there is that at Polyface Farms, you guys are very resourceful and, and you use what you have around and you use it for everything. And and so some people would say you you at your farm do things a little differently. Um, what's kind of going on at Polyface Farms that, that you do that a lot of other farms maybe don't do? Uh, well, you know, several things, but, but they're, they're pretty basic. I mean, for example... For one thing, um, animals move. <laughs> you know, we, we live in a time when in our greater farming culture, we don't think animals are supposed to move. They're supposed to be locked up in in uh, concentrated animal feeding out operations known as factory farms, and uh, or I call them concentration camps, <laughs> and, um, and, and they're locked up there and, and don't move. And what that does is it sets, up, it sets up, as soon as you assume animals move, then it sets up a whole series of, of kind of a domino consequences. If you say, well, animals don't need to move, they're supposed to be pinned up in a, in a, in a, uh, in a factory, uh, then that sets up another set of, of circumstances, another context. And so because we say animals move, then obviously we had to develop portable water systems, portable shelter systems, portable control systems, because, you know, the neighbors don't want the animals on their place. Yeah. And uh, and so you know that that was one. A, a second one is that um, that that food and farmscapes should be highly um, integrated. They should be they should be uh, diversified, integrated as opposed to segregated. And as you know, mainline farming. You know, you think of a an, a, an apple grower or a soybean grower or a dairy farmer. Uh, we we think of farmers in terms of of kind of one item. The monocrop. It's, yeah, a, a monospecies or monocrop, exactly, and um, and that's not the way nature is. Nature is highly diversified, and and there is no animal-less ecosystem. There is no ecosystem that ha- that doesn't have animals. And uh, you know, historically, one of the functions of animals was to move fertility around. Um, you know, think about it. If you didn't have tractors and 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 you know wheels. Um, how is nature going to move the fertility that naturally accumulates in a valley for, by gravitational movement of minerals and soil and biomass? How is it going to move that fertility accumulating in the valley 
and get it back up onto the ridgetop and the, and the slopes. Well, it does it with animals. Animals, you know, graze and eat in the valleys where it's fertile. And then predation, predation pushes them up on top where they lounge, ruminate, chew their cud, poop and pee and start that fertility cycle around again. So, so we, um, you know, we're, we're big on the fact that, that uh, a regenerative uh, ecological farm has to have animals. They, they fill this, this wonderful function. Um, another, another thing is that, you know, we, we believe that animals should be able to integrate symbiotically with what we're doing. So, for example, instead of giving the cows ivamec and, and uh, grubicides and parasiticides, we follow them with eggmobiles. The chickens scratch through the cow patties, eat out the fly larva, and, and spread the cow patties out and sanitize the paddock like the egret on the rhino's nose, like the, you know, like the birds that follow the, the uh, wildebeest in the Serengeti. Don't you call, um, that, don't you call that the salad bar? <laughs> yeah, well, it's uh, the 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 the, uh, the herbivores are certainly eating the salad bar, oh, it's the but uh, but yeah. the 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 birds following the herbivores are essentially a, a biological you know a biological sanitizer. So you know what we're doing is here's the point: what we're doing is nothing new. It is simply looking at ancient wisdom. Hmm. It is looking at how things functioned, and essentially. Uh, Drawing that template out with modern, absolutely, we're not Luddites, but with modern technology like electric fencing. You know, we don't have fire and wolves to, uh, to, to move the herbivores around. What we have is electric fencing with microchip energizers, okay? Um, and, and we don't have, you know, passenger pigeon flocks that block out the sun for three days like they used to. But what we do have is chickens. But we, we, we get the mobbing, we get the, the, uh, the flocking together with, uh, again, high-tech space-age electrified netting that's little stainless steel filaments running on polyethylene threads. I mean, so, so we're using technology, but not to, not to uh, uh, change nature, but simply to come along as a masseuse, if you will, uh, to, to caress nature with high technology so we don't adulterate these basic patterns god i love that point it's not new it's old it's ancient and that's kind of why it works i love that point yeah it's it's uh it's way more ancient than antibiotics let me tell you way more ancient absolutely so i i I wanted to touch on kind of i guess a why what how format so so why what we're currently doing isn't working what you're doing that is working and then how the person at home can maybe incorporate some of those things into their life and and really start turning it around but i mean i think you you touched on the first part that kind of why like what's what's wrong with the factory farming it's it's those three things you mentioned the animals don't move it's not diversified and it's not integrated right well and 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 the result of all that the thing is the result of all that is a new lexicon that we have learned, anybody over 50 years old, I do this all the time, I do a lot of speaking, and, and I always ask the crowd, I said, anybody here over 50, put your hand up if you ever heard, you know, until you were like, you know, 35 years old, um, did you ever hear the word, the phrase, food allergy? Did you ever hear the phrase gluten-free? Did you ever hear the phrase, you know, autism, uh, Campylobacter, Listeria, E. coli, Salmonella, bovine spongiform encephalopathy. You know, I'm going yeah. down this list, and and and, and nobody. We, we grew up. We never. These things didn't exist. They, they weren't in the lexicon. And today, every school child 
you know, spits off these phrases in the in this lexicon as if it's <laughs> if it's common language. Right, right. And and so what this what this new lexicon is is a it's a manifestation of nature batting last thing. Okay, fool me once, fool me twice. You know, eventually, I'm going to balance this. I'm going to balance the sheet out. You can't abuse me except with so much. And here are the results. And so that's exactly what we're seeing. So when you ask why, the fact is that the United States you know, leads the world in the five non-infectious um, morbidity uh, uh, rates. We lead the world in per capita expenditure on health care. Mm. We lead the world in rates of autism. We lead the world. I mean, look, <laughs> these are not things you want to be on, on the top of the, you know, these are not things you want to lead on. And, and uh, they are all symptomatic of the fact that we lead the world in, in, uh, um, in, in taking a mechanical view toward life and a, a mechanistic view toward life. And when you view life as fundamentally mechanical rather than biological, it sets up a whole series of issues that culminate in the kind of lexicon that we have learned to speak now. So mm. the answer, answer is not more pharmaceuticals, more vaccines, more concrete, more fans, more you know manure lagoons, you know whatever. Uh, you know Einstein uh, said you can't solve a problem with the same thinking that created it, mm. and or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And and so so if if all of this uh, confinement, segregation, uh, um, and infrastructure, and and doping, uh, if that has created the problem that we have, then what's the opposite of that? And the opposite of that is, of course, a situation in which um, we have highly integrated systems, we have decentralized systems, and we have... Uh, uh, carbon-centric systems where sanitation, hygiene, and, and cleanliness come from uh, composting and rapid degeneration or, or rapid decomposition, as opposed to you know uh, vaccination and um, and and drug use, pharmaceutical use. Joel, you started to touch on a point, and it's one of them that I heard from you. I think it was on a radio show or a lecture you were doing. And it totally changed the way I started looking at food. And it was that we do not have a production problem, but we have a distribution problem. And that half the food in the world goes uneaten. That's right. That, I mean, that's, that, right. that's well, amazing. <laughs> well, it is. And, you know, what's interesting is that even, you know, we hear about, oh, the world's got too many people, you know, we're overpopulated. Oh, you know, this population thing's out of control. Right. And and um, the, the fact is that never, never in the Earth's history have we produced twice as much feed, twice as much feed, twice as much food as we need on the planet. We, we, we've never we've never done that before, and and we are doing that today. Believe me, the Monsantos of the world, the Sibagaygis, the Conagras, um, you know, they they love to have people running around uh, like Kenny Penny saying uh, the world's overpopulated, you know, we've got to feed the world, we've got to figure out how to, you know, how to produce more, produce more, produce more. Yeah. Uh, no, if you could double production tomorrow, not one single additional tummy would be full. 
Now, that's not a harsh thing. That's reality. The fact is that nobody goes hungry because there's not enough food. They go hungry because it's not, it's not distributed in the right places. That could be socioeconomic. It could be a warlord holding a, you know, a, 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 an Uzi on a Red Cross uh, relief truck. Right. Uh, you know, it's, 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 it's the Syrian refugees. It's, you know, it, it's this kind of stuff. It's, it's genocide in Rwanda. It, you know, it, it's, it's a bad road on the corner of a cliff in, in Nepal. Uh, it's not because there's not enough food. It's because there's, there's all sorts of other, you know, distribution issues surrounding it. And so the, the industry loves... They love to hear people uh, um, paranoid and fearful about overpopulation and feeding the world because what that fear does, fear, and, and I would suggest, you know, sincere concern, is that it makes people swallow the idea that, well, if we don't have factory farms, if we don't have chemicals, if we don't have, anim- you know, if we don't have all these things, yeah. then we won't be able to do it, and, and nothing could be further from the truth. The United States has 35 million acres of lawn and 36 million acres housing and growing feed for recreational horses. That's 71 million acres. That's enough to feed our entire country without a single farm or ranch. That's amazing, man. And uh, <laughs> yeah, that's that's really amazing. It's going to be a hard pill for the, for the, my neighbor to swallow. That is nice, pretty lawn that he waters three times a day. Uh, yeah. isn't isn't yeah. uh, <laughs> as necessary. Yeah, and, and, and listen, listen, listen. I, I don't get me wrong. I'm not opposed to lawns. I'm not opposed to recreational horses. What I am saying, though, is that when when you when you walk around, you know, henny penny style, the sky is falling. The sky is falling. <laughs> the truth is, there's a whole lot of wiggle room and luxury currently built into the system. You know, uh, um, Cornell. University up in New York did an interesting study about four years ago. They took the time period 1990 to 2005, a 15-year period, and the question was how much farmland in the state of New York, just state of New York, mm-hmm. um, how much farmland has been abandoned but is still privately owned. In other words, this is not land that got gobbled up for strip malls or condominiums or expressways or whatever. This is still this is still uh, privately owned land that is simply uh, that was actively farmed before 1990 and today is not being farmed. It's just it's just you know abandoned. And what they found in New York State alone was 3.1 million acres. And if you drive. If you drive upstate New York, you know, um, Ithaca and, and up through there, uh, Syracuse, you will just go by mile after mile after mile of early forested, you know, uh, 20-foot-tall saplings mm-hmm. that are that are this whole abandoned, very, very, very fertile uh, farmland um, that, that's just been abandoned. And, of course, you know, what made it abandoned was, was the tax rates. New York City and, and the, the urban areas, Buffalo and, and New York City, pushed the rural uh, tax rates up so far that it drove all the farmers off the land, and and so you know nothing's nothing's being done with it, and uh, and all that land obviously could be you know could be impressed back into service. Wow, and and so to keep touching on this really important point with you know some lands we could reclaim or people's lawns could get converted to gardens or that half the world's food goes uneaten and we have a distribution problem why why does it seem to be the focus that um 
global hunger. That seems to be the focus. And and like enriching rice to help uh, people that don't get the nutrition or GMOs or increasing production seems to be the main focus, not uh, doing it more sustainably or, or taking what we already have. Like it seems to be like we're trying well, to make more. <laughs> well, uh, it's much it's much easier and uh, much more. Uh, um, what should I say? Uh, capitalistic friendly mm-hmm. to um, to try to solve uh, or, or uh, you know, to try to grow more on a smaller area than to change the uh, demographics of a society so that more people have access. To a square yard of land that they can work on, okay, uh, or, or or for you know for that matter to change the infrastructure to you know to change the road situation, um, there just there just isn't the the um, the incentive to do that. And is, it, is it kind of a zero dollar question or a zero dollar problem? Yeah, I, right? I, I think I, I think it is. The, the thing the thing that I think that that your listeners need to understand is that that four hundred years ago. North America produced far more food than it produces today. That's the thing that people have to understand. Wow. That when the buffalo and the passenger pigeon and the and the, uh, the, the the prairie chicken and the elk and the antelope and the Native American and the wolves uh, uh, ran this ran this ecosystem and the beavers don't leave out the beavers. You know, eight percent eight percent of America's uh, landscape was in beaver ponds. And those, of course, have all now been drained, and um, and and now we have, of course, you know, aquifer depletion and, and and all this. The point is that nature wants a perennial system; it wants a highly integrated system, a relational system. And when you start going breaking up the relationships, creating a segregated system, and you and you uh, you view water as a as a drainage problem instead of a hydration problem. Hmm. Uh, all of these things, uh, you actually have a much poorer, a much poorer production system than you than you did before. I mean, I mean, you know, Audubon said he sat under a tree and he couldn't see the sun for three days for the number of birds flying over. The the Native Americans have stories of where a flock of birds would come in and land in a forest there in Indian village, and and in the morning, the, the, the Indians would come out and look, and the whole forest was just uh, a tree spire standing up. All the limbs were knocked off, and there was an inch of, of bird poop on the ground. Um, uh, you know, we don't have those kind of flocks anymore. A bison, I've got, a, got the most fascinating little uh, paragraph from a diary in 1870 of a guy out in Arkansas that went up on a hill, and he said he saw a herd of buffalo 50 miles long and 20 miles wide, and you could not see the prairie between the animals. They were that thick on 50 miles by 20 miles. Captain Jim Bridger, when he went out to the Black Hills originally, uh, he said he got behind a herd of 7 million bison, and and they would have starved to death with their you know their horses and what they were doing. They would have starved to death uh, if they hadn't been carrying oats for their horses because it, it took them five days to get out from behind this herd of bison to where there was any uh, forage or, or, or fodder or anything for their horses. Wow. We, we have a hard time, you know, if you go to, you go to California, the, uh, you know, the, the, um, you know, the megafauna, the megafauna that was in California uh, 400 years ago, you know, that was, that was not 
a a a uh, a forest as we see it today. The redwoods and stuff they were hot. They were much more um, spaced. Uh, there was much more distance between them. The the um, the spruces and aspen of Colorado that today there are millions of acres that are burning and, and dead and burning. You know we are now spending over a hundred million dollars a week on fire suppression, and and yeah. all, all all of this is indicative of just a a disappreciation. It's a disappreciation of a carbon centric system, and in in the in the ancient. Uh, Ecological systems, from the Native American to the bison to the to the wolves to the fire, um, that system ran off of symbiosis, diversity, and uh, and hydration and carbon. It didn't run on petroleum. It didn't run on on any of that. It, it ran on a highly integrated, complex, synergistic, symbiotic, carbon-centric system. And that system actually produced more food. Now, I mean, it was it was feeding it was feeding ten million wolves. Okay, <laughs> so, but you know, when I say that statistic, people look at me and say, oh, "Come on, wait a minute, you know, who was eating it all?" Well, wolves, you know, and and, coyotes and, and a lot of and, 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 a little less and picky. beavers. I mean, yeah, there were millions and millions of beavers. So. So, um, and in fact, you know, there was a big population of Native Americans here, not as many people as there are today, but we now know that, you know, Nebraska and Kansas had more, had a higher population 400 years ago in Kansas and, and Nebraska than live there today. Whoa. So, 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 you know, this, this, the, the fact is that by the time the Europeans came, Ninety percent of the native population had been wiped out with European diseases. That's amazing, and, and so that's where you get this manifest destiny in this wide open continent. Well, you know, it, it, it wasn't it uh, until until a century before the Europeans came. It wasn't a wide open continent. They they were you know highly advanced. Uh, I mean, look at what the Incas and the and the uh, Aztecs. Did. And, and now we know the, the Brazilian, you know, the rainforest of the Amazon was not some sort of a haphazard jungle. Yeah. It was actually a planted garden with selected uh, selected perennial uh, tree cultivars carefully selected by native wisdom. And that's why the jungle is such an amazing, productive, uh, you know, a thing today, not because it was haphazard, but because the cultivars were carefully selected over over uh centuries so the so the amazon in brazil down there or, or uh south america was right. selected yeah. and planted yes yes absolutely yes. if you read the book uh, 1491 uh-huh. uh 1491 you, know, you get a lot of this uh guns germs and steel goes into it some uh 1493 uh the book goes into it some uh but you know the whole, whole the whole biochar uh, uh, deal has has all been spawned out of out of uh, finding discovering these ancient uh, deposits along the Amazon uh, River and its tributaries uh, that were from these highly highly advanced civilizations wow. that you know when you read the diaries of of, uh, of these early Spanish explorers. They were petrified. The only reason that the Spanish were able to conquer South America is because they had guns and steel, and those native populations didn't. But the native populations were physically larger, they were healthier, and and they were you know far far more populous 
Wow. Uh, but they didn't have they didn't have gunpowder. They didn't have steel, and those were the two things. And they didn't have the germs. And so, um, so that's why you know guns, germs, and steel literally just wiped out these massive, massive populations. It's it's uh, it's truly, truly quite profound. It's kind of kind of what we're doing today in the Amazon. You know, some some companies are going in saying they want their land, and they'll give them all this money, and they they kick them out, or they pay for it, and they um, yes. they go back in there. Oh, yeah. So we're seeing that today as well. Yeah, yeah. There's a tremendous amount of displaced uh, the displacement both. Both there and in Africa, lots of uh, lots of Western uh, corporate land grabbing uh, in those areas. And, and, and again, that's why I say, you know, when I when I was in um, in Italy at the uh, at the big low food convivium Terra mm-hmm. Terra Madre uh, there in Turin, um, uh, I I was speaking. But when I wasn't speaking, I made a point of going to every African delegation that was there. And listening to what the Africans had to say, and every single one of them started their presentation with, "We have plenty of markets, plenty of resources, and plenty of of understanding and know-how. What's killing us is Western dumping from UNICEF, from mm. United Nations, from World Health Relief, from from all these relief organizations. What you're doing is you're you're dumping in our countries, and you're displacing." You're displacing the work ethic. You're displacing the resource base, and you're turning us into a bunch of, uh, you know, Western whatever welfare parasites. And and um, and if yeah. you would just get out, uh, we have we ha- we would see a, a a blossoming of entrepreneurial uh, indigenous indigenous understanding that would you know that would feed us and do us very well. I heard that argument with Tom's Shoes. I don't know if you're familiar with them, that one-for-one program where you buy a pair of shoes and then they send one over to a kid in need, which is such a noble concept. I mean, helping people and giving back. I mean, I I love that. But what you're saying is very true with Tom's Shoes. I was reading an article that said it displaced so many people's livelihoods because they were the shoemaker or they had shoe repairs or they were doing x y and z and then everyone became dependent on these shoes and then they have nowhere to go from it and so it displaces a lot of it yeah i had a fascinating conversation with a guy who'd spent just who spent um who'd just come back from six weeks of filming documentaries over in i'm not sure where he was congo kenya somewhere you know for for us here in the u.s you know it's just africa (laughs) we don't (laughs) we know where egypt is you know where south africa is but you know when you start getting into the little nitty-gritty we're very uh, geographically uh challenged but anyway um this this guy uh said that that what he saw were these container loads of western you know western you know uh, missionary barrels and, and container loads and things coming in and he said what happened was that the the entrepreneurs, you know, every society, every society has go getters, you know, its little entrepreneurial fringe, if you will, the go getters, and then it has the, you know, the the plotters, and then of course it has the followers. And what what you know what drives what drives an economy, what drives a culture, of course, are the entrepreneurs, the go getters, you know, the ones that are risk takers and and I'm going to better things and yeah. whatever. And and he said the the problem is. That this all of this foreign aid comes in, and it doesn't displace the people down at the bottom, the followers. You know, it doesn't because they don't have any initiative anyway. What it displaces are the go-getters, the entrepreneurs, the people up at the top. Hmm. And guess what? They turn into they turn into these warlords because they're go-getters. They they, they don't want to sit around. They want to they want to do stuff. 
And so when they're displaced commercially from their vendor stall or their trade or their artisanship, when they're displaced in the economy, then they become these 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 um, what we call warlords. These these guys that then you know get their little gang together and um, and and create havoc in the culture because they don't want to sit around and, and follow. They want to they want to do things. Yeah. And it was a really a really fascinating um, you know social I think social look at it, it makes sense. You know it does make sense when you hear it. But in the West here, we tend to not think about it because see, we see the pictures of the little you know, starving children or whatever, and and we, you know, yeah, Santa Claus look, comes on TV and and we just want to throw yeah, money, it, yeah. You know the, the 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 question of how how is it best to help somebody, right? Man, you know if if you have a caring spirit, that is a, that is just a gut wrenching question because the truth is, the way I first think would be the best to help you very well may not be the best way to help you. If you're an alcoholic and you're penniless and you're out here asking for $2 on the street, the way for me to help you is not give you $2 so you can buy alcohol. And you know, that's simply enabling. Mm, yeah. But you know, that, that sounds, that sounds hard nosed and, and, and tough. But, uh, but the truth is, um, you know, I, I'm here to help you only works if, if it's really dealing with root causes and not if it's just um, uh, aiding and abetting the, the problem that's already there. Well, teaching people how to fish versus just giving them fish, which I know you're very passionate yeah. about with your books and, and teaching entrepreneurial with uh, farming. And that's something that's, that's I really respect you for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's right. So back to the West, I want to instate, Joel Salatin as head of agriculture, give him unlimited resources, unlimited policy. What do you do to turn this system around? How do you fix it? Oh, my. What a great question. Well, I'll tell you what. You don't fix it from the top down. You fix it from the bottom up. And so uh, so there, you, what, what we have right now is a system that through lots of, lots of reasons incentivizes um, – incentivizes resource rape rather than rather than uh, resource stewardship or, or care or I would even say uh, increasing the commons and so um, the first thing that I would do the first thing I would do is um, make is make direct food trade between farmers and customers uh, completely off limits the government intervention. In other words, if you want to come to my farm, look around, smell around, ask around, and buy what I have for sale, we ought to be able to do business without a bureaucrat in between us. I mean, that is that is the, the most uh, basic, primal, um, hunter-hunted, you know, yeah. uh, kind of neighbor commerce that you can imagine. How, how, right are, they now, in, how I, are they in between right now? Well, right now, if I, if I have a milk cow... And I want to, and you come and you want to buy some milk from me. I can't sell you milk. It's illegal. They put me in jail if I mm. sell you milk. If I, if you, if I, uh, if I go out here and butcher a cow, and um, and you want to come and buy a T-bone steak, I can't sell you a T-bone steak um, unless it goes through, you know, a, a government inspected uh, facility. Wow. And 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 so so what that does, it does several things. One is that it artificially makes. The, the small-scale commerce, the kind of integrated community-based neighbor-to-neighbor commerce 
with you, could I say, cave-to-cave commerce <laughs> that, that's happening, okay, um, that, that, that has always been normal, it makes that commerce uh, impossible. And, and, and uh, you know, I, I, I don't have any problem saying I, it, offends, it offends me yeah. that there are people that think that, that a bureaucrat has to get between me and my, my, my neighbor and I in every food transaction we do. What, um, uh, Joel, what about farmer's markets? Isn't, isn't that direct? Well, uh, that is that is pretty direct, and I would include that kind of thing as being outside the purview of government. I certainly would. Okay. Uh, but but those uh, have a lot of regulations as well. Uh, you know, I can't go there and sell uh, what I've just described. I can't sell a, a, a quiche that I've made. I can't sell, um, you know, a bologna. I can't sell charcuterie. I can't sell a a, a vegetarian uh, um, soup. Uh, you know, I, I can't do any of this um, because there's going to be a health inspector there, um, hmm. you know, asking me, did I get my label, you know, approved? Did I get my uh, kitchen approved? Did I get my uh, production facility improved? And did I get whatever, you know, th- there's a whole list of that. What, what about my HACCP plan and where's my temperature controls? And you know, it just it just goes on ad nauseum. And, uh, and so... That, what that does is it, it, it arbitrarily shoves the food system toward the big players who have the clout and the money to, to, uh, to garner for themselves concessionary legislation, regulation, and subsidies to create unfair market advantage, whether it's unfair market advantage from a legal standpoint or a price standpoint or availability standpoint or a distribution point standpoint. You know, there's, a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, unfair advantages that somebody can have, and, and there are a lot of them in the food system. I, I meet thousands of farmers every year, thousands of farmers every year. I was, I was just in Kitsap County, um, uh, Washington, yeah, uh, nice. uh, an hour away from Seattle this yep. weekend, and and met a hundred farmers there, okay, who are on ten and twelve and fifteen acre farms, who are poised and ready to feed the entire area all the food that it needs, but what stands between them and the market are a host of zoning regulations, uh, workplace regulations. Food safety regulations, uh, you name it, just a host of these that are that are capricious, and they they arbitrarily make an embryonic an embryonic business virtually impossible because you can't because not enough money to pay for the overheads of paperwork and infrastructure that the system requires. Yeah. I mean, I'll give you an example right now. They just made an ordinance. And they're going to require that if you have a farm intern, that the, the, the domicile that the farm intern is in, and that includes if, if it's an RV, okay? Now, now so, so, so whatever domicile the, the farm intern is in, it has to be 200 square feet or larger. Now, now gentle people, forgive me, but if, if I can be very happy living in a hundred square feet or 199 square feet, 
by whose authority does anyone have the right to tell me that I can't live in, in anything less than 200 square feet? Hmm. But, but these, you know, and, and you say, well, what does that have to do with food? Well, it has to do a lot with food because what happens is that a small farm trades pharmaceuticals and depreciable infrastructure for a higher degree of observation, labor, and management. Okay? So we, we strategically make the trade. Okay, we're not going to use the antibiotics. We're not going to use the pharmaceuticals. We're not going to pour concrete. We're not going to use the fans, energy intensive, and all that stuff. What we are going to use is we're going to use more people. And so we don't, I don't apologize for being a, a, a human-centric farm, okay? I, I, I think that what are humans for? I think we should have noble and sacred work to do. And so these highly intensified, multi-speciated, stackable, permaculture-type, um, you know, integrated farms, a 10 to 12-acre produce operation, especially if they're running a commercial kitchen and, and value-adding anything, it, it takes people. It takes people to run that. And so suddenly I have this 10-acre farm, highly, highly productive farm, you know, five times more productive than any commercial Cargill monoculture operation. Right. But that, that takes people. It takes people to do. And suddenly my cost of people is, is uh, inordinately made very, very high because of this, you know, uh, three commissioners sitting there saying, well, we don't think anybody should live in a place under 200 square feet. Yeah. I see what you're saying. Joel, one thing that's going around right now in America, and you, clearly you're very opinionated and very educated and you have a lot of backing, and I really want your take on it, is the legalization of medical marijuana. I mean, that's a type of farming now that you're seeing entrepreneurship. Time magazines project that there will be billionaires there. Um, do, you, do you think that's good for farming and agriculture? Like, What's just your general opinion on, on what's going on with that in America? Well, anybody that knows me knows knows that I'm not being satirical when I say, well, I would be in favor of legalizing everything. Uh, I mean, I mean, uh, I mean, from methamphetamines to, to whatever. Uh, I think when the government gets between my lips and my throat, that's an invasion of privacy. Hmm. And so, I, I think I think that essentially allowing now 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 you know, before somebody flips out, I'm also not in favor of of uh, national health care that will take care of people when they when they shoot their brains out okay yeah. so so you know a part of I, i'm for freedom but part of but part of what makes freedom work is the responsibility that you personally engender for your decisions and that's how that's how you get then freedom with you know with constraints and and so i am in favor of of all the hemp um all the hemp that can be grown. I mean, the fact that currently, it's, you know, in uh, since the turn of the century, since uh, since hemp production was outlawed, uh, the fact that the U.S. has had to buy all of its rope, all of its fiber from foreign countries, and farmers couldn't enjoy hmm. the um, you know the value of that. You know, and Henry Henry Ford made a hemp car. Uh, it was cheaper than steel, lighter than steel, stronger than steel. But we don't have hemp cars, which would all be, you know, much. I mean, basically, you're making you're making a car out of sunlight, okay? Right. Much, much better than mining steel. But we can't do it because hemp is illegal. And so, uh, so I'm a fan of anything uh, that that releases farmers and releases the culture 
to be able to explore the you know the the meets and bounds of of our own you know our own innovation sure. and and if we don't and if we don't have the government picking the winners and losers then all of that experimentation will be done on a more proper scale you know take um you know take alcohol fuel i'm not opposed to alcohol fuel but it, it makes a, it makes a big difference if that alcohol fuel is subsidized to the tunes of billions and billions of dollars, and we build taxpayer subsidized plants that whether we need it or don't, whether it's good or not, that that plant, by golly, we built that, we invested in it, and it's going to dominate the, the whole landscape, the whole landscape uh, uh, production uh, plan is going to dominate that out 50 miles to keep that plant running, as opposed to. If you want to grow some corn and make alcohol, we'll do it, you know. And and so, you know, we need to eliminate the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, uh, and and allow people to uh, to grow their own fuel. We need to free up hemp so that it can be grown, and um, you know, and 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 allow you know cottage, cottage small scale, um, you know, value added commerce, and and let you know, and let neighborhoods do commerce. Uh, with with real market with real market uh, con, uh, constraints and opportunities hmm. in, in a instead of fabricated market constraints and opportunities. Sure, man. So we're coming up on time here. Um, I want to respect it, but just as a closing, couple things. A person who just listened to this call, they're really inspired and they want to know what to do. They want to know how they can get involved or make change or what to eat. Uh, what do you recommend? What are your quick, maybe two or three steps or recommendations for the person at home? Yeah. Okay. So, so if we just narrow this down to food, what can you do on food? I've got, I've got three things. Uh, one is get in your kitchen. Uh, you know, the, the most, the most empowering thing you can do is get in your kitchen, learn about food, viscerally participate with it and, and, and start doing it yourself. I mean, the, the, you're not going to put MSG in your food. <laughs> you're not going right, to right. put a bunch of junk in your food, right? So, so um, you know, get in your kitchen and 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 cut the feed off of all these processors and big, you know, food adulterators out there. Number two, um, turn off the TV and um, and take your your entertainment budget for the year and spend it finding your food treasures in your area. Every area now has great, great farms that do integrity food, build soil, uh, are doing all the right things. We'll find them and patronize them. Many of them are struggling. If they had three or four more customers, they could quit their town job and be on the farm full time. Be that catalyst. Be that facilitator. Move them forward that direction. And the third thing is do something yourself. It could be as simple as throwing out the gerbil and the cat and getting two pet, you know, two chickens. Eat your kitchen scraps and lay you eggs. Hmm. And yes, this can be done in a condominium. Um, it, it can be as simple as getting a vermicomposting bin under your sink instead of the garbage disposal. It could be it could be a patio garden, you know, where you have a, a pot a pot garden. Yeah, really a pot garden. Um, but you know, where, where you have container gardening, you can have a beehive on the roof. Uh, you know, there, there are lots of things that you can do yourself just to just to uh, enjoy the satisfaction and encouragement of being um, of being a, a a visceral participant in the majesty, the mystery, and the awesomeness of life. Awesome, Joel. Your books, the most popular ones, uh, you can farm salad bar beef and folks. This ain't normal, correct? 
Yes. Uh huh. And where can yeah, they? You got it. Where can they go to pick those up? Well, they can get those off of you know off of Amazon. They can get them from our uh, our gift shop. They can uh, get them from your local bookstore. Uh, they're they're all out there. They're all available. Uh, Chelsea Green Publishing uh, is our distributor, okay. and um, they're they're very they're very available. And how do people at home right now support you and kind of what you do and get behind the mission? Is there is there any like Facebook group or or um, call to action you guys like to give out? Uh, yes, there, there's one, especially the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund. It's it's uh, that, that's a, a mouthful to say. And if you go to our website, polyfacefarms.com, of course, you know you can you can uh, find these things. But um, as far as an organization, Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund is um, is kind of the you know the the watchdog that's that's providing. Well, it's the Homeschool Legal Defense Association of this um, of this. You know, integrity food movement, and the truth is that there's there is an orthodoxy of food in this country, an orthodoxy of food in the farming, and there is a heresy, and people like me are the heretics, and and so the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund is a group of attorneys who actually provide real time counsel when the SWAT team or the food police come to your place and harass you for some you know uh, violation, and um, and. Just like they were taking children away from homeschoolers 30 years ago and, and putting them in foster care, uh, the Homeschool Legal Defense Association gave real-time legal counsel for people that were, you know, that were facing the truant officer. Today, we have the same thing now with the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund, and I, I would like to see that become as powerful as the NRA. The day, the day that Americans are just as interested in food freedom as they are gun. Uh, gun rights freedom, uh, we will have a very different country and a very, very different way we interact with our ecological school. Phenomenal, Joel. Again, thanks for coming on, man. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me so much. Take care.